You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit Stonegate-Church.com. How we doing? Everybody's good? Merry Christmas to you. It's here one way or the other. It's here. So uh, John chapter 1 is where you need to be. So if you want to grab a Bible and turn to that, that would really help you to have John 1. And then you might just for easy you know, access mark John 17. Um, having both of those two spots out would be a help to you. So John 1 and John 17. And as you're turning there, let me just do a quick reminder that we have a Christmas Eve service coming up in a couple of days on Wednesday night. It will be from 5 to about 6 p.m. And I, I want to just encourage you to be there. If you're in and around town, you have family here, it would be a great thing to take your family to. It's going to have um, just some really a fun feel to it, I think, and be really evangelistic. And so uh, I think it would be a good opportunity for your family to hear the good news of Jesus. And so um, I want to encourage you to make sure you're thinking in those sort of ways to leverage, you know, leverage relationships in your neighborhood, uh, co-workers, family um, for that. And so that'll be Wednesday night, 5 o'clock right here. Um, and we won't have child care, so everybody will be in here with us. So it's going to be fun. It's going to be good for them. We'll have a lot of music. We'll have a little children's moment for our kids. So all of that's coming Wednesday night, Christmas Eve. So we're looking forward to that. Okay, if you have stumbled in on us, this is your first time at Stonegate. We are in part nine of a set of sermons called Gospel Doctrine and gospel culture. And he, I'm going to say the same thing that I've said the last few weeks. I want us to get this. I don't want us just to, to like, have heard it, but to know it where we can communicate it. The heart of this set of sermons really goes like this, that we really do believe that gospel doctrine should create a gospel culture, that those two things should be tied together, that a church has to pay attention to both their doctrine on paper and their culture in practice, that both of those are vitally important for a church, that the doctrine of grace should produce in a church family a culture of grace. The doctrine of, uh, you know, the, the doctrine of reconciliation should produce in a church a culture of peacemaking, that this doctrine really should be producing this sort of a culture. I mean, just think about gospel doctrine. Gospel doctrine is unbelievably great things happen to undeserving people, people, even ill-deserving people. Now, that is your story if you're in Jesus. You're an undeserving, even ill-deserving person, and God has been extraordinarily kind to you in giving you things, bestowing grace upon you. And that should be producing a culture where among our church family, how we interact with people, that we are being incredibly kind and gracious and giving to people who don't deserve it. Now, doesn't the world need a culture like that? I mean, we live in a culture where when someone gets punched, what do they do back? They punch back, don't they? It's a tit-for-tat world. You do this to me, it's eye for an eye. That's the world we live in. And a culture of grace is, no, that's not the culture we're going to show. We're going to show a culture that reflects the good news of Jesus. And although we threw the first punch at God, he came to us in grace and mercy and forgiveness. So gospel doctrine should be creating a gospel culture. This is the big idea that we're getting at. And so each week we've taken different little aspects of gospel doctrine. Here's the good news of Jesus and just begin to ask the questions. What sort of a culture should be produced by that doctrine? What is the, what is the, the, the sort of culture that should grow up out of this doctrine? So this week we're going to take the good news of, of incarnation. The gospel doctrine of the incarnation, of God becoming man on our behalf. We're going to take the doctrine of the incarnation, consider that, and then ask questions about the culture that should grow out of that doctrine. So gospel doctrine, incarnation, we're going to go to John chapter 1 to see this. John chapter 1. 
And in particular, verse 14. This is where we're going to hang for most of the day. John chapter 1, verse 14. Here is our gospel doctrine. This is the incarnation. John 1, verse 14 says this. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Let's read that first part one more time. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That is the doctrine of the incarnation in a nutshell. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. I want to to take that in parts. And we'll start with the word. John says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The word. So what is, the question is, what does the word mean? Like when he uses the term the word, what is the word? If you go back to John chapter 1, verse 1, look at the first verse in this chapter. You'll see this is how he introduces everything. The, the gospel of John starts with the, this phrase of, in the beginning was the word. And there's like this climatic buildup in this chapter where he keeps using this idea of the word. But, but it leads to this, this buildup where you finally get to the point where you say, well, okay, but what is the word? Who is the word? You keep using the word, the word. What is the word? And as you keep reading the chapter, here's what you're going to see. That John equates Jesus as the word. The word equals Jesus. Now, so I think one question comes from that of like, well, why didn't you just say Jesus? Why didn't you just say in the beginning, you know, Jesus? Why didn't he go that way as opposed to, to calling Jesus the word? And so this is like contextualization 101. John is looking at a group of people. He is writing to a Greek, philosophical-ish sort of an audience. So that's his audience that he's writing to. And what John is doing by using the word is he's taking a, a, this phrase that they use. So in Greek philosophical circles, the word was a well-worn concept. It was their way of referring to the creator and the sustainer of the universe. So this is the word in their mind. So, so he's taking their word, the word, and then he looks at that word and he redefines it with Jesus. He's saying, do you know this word that y'all all use and you all know? As you're referring to God, the creator, the, the sustainer, the controller of the universe. Well, that God, the word, he has a name and his name is Jesus. That's who you're talking about. That's who Jesus is. So he's, he's walking us into this idea of the word is Jesus. So the question becomes, what does John tell us about the word? How does he describe Jesus in this passage? Let me just point out a couple of things to you. Verse 1. In verse 1, he says, in the beginning was the word. So John is telling us here that Jesus is eternal. In the beginning was the word, that Jesus is eternal. Now, if you have read your Old Testament... Genesis 1 should come to your mind when you see the phrase, in the beginning was the word. That's a mirror kind of a a language that Genesis 1-1 uses. And so John is, in a lot of ways, connecting us back there. He's saying, yeah, you you know when everything started? That Jesus was there. He's always been there. He always has been. Jesus is, and he always will be. This is what it means to be eternal. So in one sense, it's okay to say that Jesus had a birthday. It was a couple thousand years ago in a little manger. But in another sense, we all have to see that John is saying that although Jesus had a birthday a couple of thousand years ago, Jesus has always existed. There's never been a point or never will be a point where Jesus fails to exist. He's always been. He is and he will always be. He's eternal. And you keep reading in verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John is showing us here that Jesus is both distinct and divine. 
distinct and divine. So when it's talking in verse 1 about he was with God and he was God, John is introducing us into the mind-blowing reality that theologians call the Trinity. Now, you're not going to find the word Trinity in the Bible. It's used to sum up what we find in the Bible. And the Bible clearly affirms these three things about God. The Bible affirms that God is one. So that's one thing the Bible affirms about God. The Bible also affirms that God is three distinct persons. One God, three distinct persons. And the Bible thirdly affirms that each one of these distinct persons are God. Now, good luck with that, right? So Caleb is our little theologically minded little guy in our house, and he loves to ask questions about that. So God's one, but he's three. How, how can that be? I look at him and say, yeah, good luck. Good luck with that. You let me know when you figure that one out. So it's one God, three persons, each fully God. This is the doctrine of the Trinity. Now, and what John is saying is, Jesus is a full-blown part of that Godhead. He is a part of, like, he is God. This is what John is, is trying to show us here. That, that God is one, but there are three distinct persons. And, and Jesus is one of the distinct persons. When we see that distinctness, when he says the word was with God. Jesus was with God. So if I were to come to you and say, I went with Bill to the movie on Friday night. If I say that I went with Bill, it means that Bill is a person and I'm a person. But there is a line that separates me from Bill. So that's what the word with is showing us there. That to be with someone, you have to be distinct from them. And so John is showing us that Jesus is a distinct part of the Godhead. He is fully God, but a distinct part of God. So you've got one God, three persons, and Jesus is one of those three persons. But then you've got the divine part. That it's not just that he is distinct from God the Father, but he is fully God. Like God, he is God the Son. And this is the, the divine part where it says the word was with God. That's distinct. But here's the divine part. The word was God. I, John is trying to help connect this dot for his audience and for us. He's looking at his audience and he's saying, do you know this, this Jesus, this person that he came and lived for 33 years, died on the cross? That Jesus, that Jesus was fully God. He was God. Now that sounds strange to say. I mean, picture someone coming up to you and say, hey, do you know um, Fred? Fred's, he's God. That feels weird, doesn't it? But that is exactly what John is saying, that Jesus is fully God. He is, he is God. It's one God, three persons, each person fully God, and Jesus is both one of those persons, and Jesus is both fully God. Now, this is where some of our Jehovah Witness friends, this is where they do like the Greek gymnastics here. And they try to make this phrase that says, he is God, say he is a God. But it doesn't say he is a God. There is not one, you know, Greek scholar with any sort of a reputation that would say it says a God. It is saying he is God. This is who he is. He is the God. He's not like one among many gods. You don't like put Jesus up with Zeus and everyone else that this Greek philosophical world would maybe want to put him beside. No, he stands above them all. He is the God. This is what John's saying. This is who the word is. He's both eternal and he's distinct and divine. And then look at verse three. We see another thing about Jesus, the word. All things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. John is helping us see here that Jesus is the creator. He is the creator God. 
Like everything you see, we are to think this in light of John 1. Jesus made it. You know, like that moment when you see a sunset, John is wanting us to connect these dots. That beautiful sunset that we see is an overflow of Jesus, the creator God. When you think about the complexity of a human being, Psalms 139 says that we are fashioned in our womb, that Jesus literally reaches into that womb and forms and fashions all that complexity, all the form, all the person. He does all of that. That when you see the complexity of a human being, we are to think that is the overflow of Jesus, our creator God. When you look up at night and see a universe full of billions of stars, that is showing you the power of Jesus, the creator God. It's just an overflow of who he is. John's trying to connect this out that he is creator. And then look at verse four. John says, in him, this word, in Jesus, was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. John is saying Jesus is life. The word is life. Who in here doesn't want more life? Who doesn't want that? Everybody wants more life. Every person came in this room this morning with this little ache in their soul. I want more life. Now you might not be saying it in those sort of words, but that ache is in every human being. That is part of what makes us humans. That every human being in this universe that has ever existed or will exist has this ache in them. I want more of, of life. That if this is all that life is, it can't be. I've, there's got to be more to it than this. Every human being has that ache in them. And John is trying to show us that that ache can only be satisfied in the person and the work of Jesus. That he is where that ache for more life, he is the only solution to that ache. And listen, even if we're in Christ, even if you're a Christian in the room, we still have that ache. We still have it. Because as a Christian, we have a down payment on the solution to that ache. Like we know Jesus as life in part now, but there will be a day where Jesus splits the, splits the sky and comes back for his bride. And in that moment, we will know life and life to the full. We will know all that our hearts long for. We'll know it in that moment. We live in a world, listen to this, that wants more life. We live in a world desperate for that. And John is saying, do you know where that life is found? Do you know where that ache can be, you know, that ache can be satisfied? It's only in Jesus. That's, that, that alone is where you find it. This is why later on in John 6, John says that Jesus is the bread of life. Whoever comes to him will never hunger. Whoever you know, believes in him will never thirst again. That is the only place that that sort of deep longing for life and joy and satisfaction will ever be scratched. So he's life. And then look down at verse 18. We learn another thing about Jesus, and there's more here, but, but for time's sake, this is the last one I'm going to talk about. Verse 18. John says, No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. So no one has ever seen God, the only God, but, but he who is at the Father's side, namely Jesus, that, that Jesus has made this God known. So John is showing us here that Jesus is the visible display of God. Have you ever asked the question, what is God like? I mean, what is like the character of God, the nature of God? What is God like? The Bible over and over is going to affirm this. If you want an answer to the question, what is God like? Look at Jesus. He is the one that shows us what God is like. So think about the Old Testament. 
You know, if I'm going to give a picture of how the people of God related to God in the Old Testament, I, I, I would want you to picture a house. So picture this massive, beautiful, breathtaking home. But here, here's the picture of God in the Old Testament, this, this God as a house view, that the entire house was made of bricks and there were no windows. So it's like the people of God in the Old Testament, they were looking at God and it was like breathtaking. It was beautiful. It was magnificent. It was an incredible view that they had of God. But it, there was so much mystery that surrounded it. It was like, man, I see something incredible, but I just, I can't get in to see what all of that is like in there. I just can't see the insides of God. I think that would be a, an accurate way of describing how the people of God related to God. There was awe, there was admiration. God revealed much of himself, but it was like God in a brick house and you just don't know what all's inside. And here is what Jesus does for us. In the coming of Jesus, it's as if God who used to be a brick house, all the bricks get traded for glass and now we can see in. Now we can peer into, that's what God is like. That this is who God is. That's the nature of God. This is the inside and the guts of God. That's God. And here's the beautiful thing about Jesus. It's not just that he turns God, the brick house, into glass. It's that he actually becomes the door by which we can enter into the house and see and experience and know God personally. We actually get that view of God, not just from the outside, but from the inside. Jesus makes the invisible God visible for us. See, if you want to know who is God, look at Jesus. He is the visible representation. He is the way we know what God is like. He's the visible display of God. So this is the word. This is what John wants us to know about the word. Things like he's eternal, distinct, and divine. He's creator. In Jesus is life. In the word, in Jesus, you know, he's the visible display of God. This is, this is all the substance around when John, in John 1.14 says, and the word, this is what he means by the word. It's this Jesus that is this magnificent and big and beautiful. And in this passage in John 1.14, the word, Jesus, is doing something. And here is what John tells us he's doing. It says, and the word became flesh. Do you see that in John 1.14? And the word became flesh. Now, when, when John says that Jesus became flesh, he is not saying Jesus became skin. Okay, that's not the idea. The word flesh is kind of a technical word that is used to describe becoming human. John is saying the word Jesus, eternal God, distinct and divine, fully God, that Jesus, the son of God, he became a human being. This is what John's saying here. Okay, now, when we talk about, you know, God the Son, Jesus, as fully God, but yet becoming human and becoming fully human. He's both fully God and fully human. When we talk about Jesus, the Son of God, becoming fully human, it's very important that we think rightly about that. When we say that God the Son became fully human, it doesn't mean that God the Son became less God is always, God the Son has always been God and always will be God. So he's not less God. He's always been God and always will be that. So it's not to say that Jesus is reduced in becoming a human being. It's to say that Jesus willingly allowed himself to be restrained. That's what it means for him to become, you know, he is fully God and to become fully human. It means that Jesus willingly allowed himself to be restrained, to take on all the frailties that come along with being a human being. He willingly endured all of those things. Okay, now let's just think about this for a minute. God the Son, 
He is fully God. That means that he is full of life and vibrancy and energy. There's never been a point where, where God the Son has been lonely. He exists in Trinity where life is overflowing. Okay, this is God the Son. He has everything. He is everything. Right? This is God the Son. This is God Almighty. And for some strange reason, God Almighty becomes fully human. So let's just think about what that means. God Almighty, here, here's a, maybe a place for starters. God Almighty inserts himself into a human womb. Is that not mind-blowing? God would put himself into a, a, a mom's womb? That's crazy. If I'm God, I'm not doing that. That's crazy. God Almighty, he's not gonna be born in a palace that would be fit for a king. He's gonna take a manger. Now, let's just keep going here. God Almighty is going to submit himself to teenage acne. I mean, think about that. Do you see part of what's happening here? This is God Almighty, and he's saying, I'm in on all of that. This is what becoming flesh means. I'm gonna submit myself to, to teenage acne. I'm gonna hit puberty one day. My voice is going to crack. God Almighty willing to do that. God Almighty willing to subject himself to a moment in his life where he gets cut and he bleeds. God Almighty willing to, to submit himself to betrayal. Willing to submit himself to the agony of a cross. This is God Almighty looking at all the frailties that we go through as human beings saying, I will, re I, I will restrain myself. I will submit myself to all of that. I'll do all of the things that, that human beings do and endure. I'll, I'll submit myself to all that. This is God Almighty saying that. Th this is God saying, I'll get sick. I think about that. God's never been sick. God, God the Son, Jesus, he has always existed and there's never been a point where he's vomited. But he became human and there was a point where he did it. And I'm just saying, if I'm God, I'm just gonna ex the vomiting part. But he's in on all the frailties that come along with being a human being. This is what it means when, when, when it says that the word became flesh. This is what it's talking about. He is restraining himself and submitting himself to all of these things. See, when, when in 2 Corinthians 8, Paul says, he who was rich, talking about Jesus, he was infinitely rich. He had everything. He was infinitely rich, but he made himself poor. That is the word becoming flesh. That is Jesus who is infinitely rich, strapping on the confines and all the frailties of human beings and becoming poor. Uh, Philippians 2 says it this way. The God who is, has everything. He is everything. This is Jesus. That God who has everything, he, he became flesh. And Philippians 2, 7 says, he made himself nothing. That is God becoming flesh. That for your sake, I will make myself nothing. Absolutely nothing. I will give it all up and become flesh. That is God the Son, God Almighty, making himself fully human. And listen, this is the heart of the incarnation. The heart of the incarnation is Jesus saying, I will lose so you can win. I will become nothing so you can have everything. That's the heart of the incarnation. That is God becoming flesh. And then it goes on to say this. The word became flesh and he did this. He dwelt among us. 
You see that in verse 14? He dwelt among us. He pitched his tent among us. He tabernacled among us. Now that is pulling from some rich Old Testament imagery. If you'll remember back to Exodus, God frees the people out of the slavery and tyranny of Egypt. They're wandering in the wilderness and God comes to them and gives them very detailed descriptions on how to build a tabernacle. And the tabernacle would be the place where God's presence would dwell and where unholy people could interact with a holy God. That was the tabernacle. And now if you think about what John is doing here, he is pulling this rich Old Testament imagery of, of, the, of God dwelling with his people in the tabernacle, pitching his tent with his people. He's pulling from that Old Testament imagery and he's saying this. Do you know like when Jesus becomes flesh, that this is what he's doing? He is becoming the tabernacle. He is becoming the place where, God, where unholy people like you and me can meet with a holy God. This is what he's becoming. In becoming human and strapping on all the frailties of human being, he is becoming the place where human beings can now find redemption, where human beings can now be rescued. He is dwelling among us. He's tabernacling among us. He's becoming the place where we and God can meet back together, where we can be reconciled to God, where we can have peace with God, where we can be adopted back into the family of God. That is what Jesus is doing in becoming flesh. He's dwelling among us. He is making the place. He is the place where unholy human beings can find peace with God. That's what he's doing. Listen, and this is the incarnation. God the Son, this is Christmas. God the Son, he becomes fully human, takes on human flesh. He dwells among us. He gives up everything so we can have everything. He gets humiliated, life, death, resurrection. He gets humiliated so we can have hope. Welcome to the good news of Christmas. This is the doctrine of the incarnation. This is gospel doctrine that God the Father would send God the Son. He takes on human flesh so that we can be re reconciled and rescued. Christmas season, Christmas message, there it is. So that's gospel doctrine, and now we get to the culture. So the question is, what kind of a culture should that doctrine produce? What sort of a people should this doctrine make? That's the question. So if John 1 is, is gospel doctrine, John 17, 18 is gospel culture. If John 1 is the doctrine, the incarnation, the culture in short is a culture of mission, a culture of being sent, a culture of living on the mission of God, like Jesus being sent. So the culture, you can see it in John 17, 18. Here is the culture that flows from and grows in the doctrine of the incarnation. John 17, 18. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. So Jesus is praying to God the Father and saying, as you have sent me, that's John 1, that is the word became flesh, that is God the Father sending God the Son to become fully human so that he can tabernacle among us, so he can make a way for us to be reconciled to God. As you have sent me into the world, God the Son is saying to God the Father, so I now am sending the church, my people who I've rescued and redeemed, so now I am sending them into the world. That's the culture. So I wanna take that, that culture that sending culture, and I want to talk about it in three different ways, in three parts. Here's part one. What, what does it mean for God, to, God the Son to send us into the world? Here's the first thing. It means that Christians, all Christians are sent people. 
Now, we could talk about this in a lot of different ways. We could say it like this. The Bible uses these sort of words, that we are all missionaries, that, that Christians are ambassadors. That's the language that Paul uses in 2 Corinthians 5, that we are God's witnesses. That's the language of, of Acts 1. So the, the idea, though, is the same in all of them. The idea is when you become a Christian, God fundamentally changes the, the bottom line nature of who you are, and he makes us all missionaries. This is what all Christians are, not a special group of Christians, not an elite kind of force of Christians, that every Christian, every son and daughter of God are also missionaries. That's identity language. You see that? It's who we are. That DNA is implanted inside of us when we become a Christian. Now, so I think it's important that when we hear like the Bible encouraging us toward mission, it is not God looking at us and saying, become what you are not. See, that's not how the Bible talks about us in mission. It, the Bible uses this sort of language and this sort of a way of encouraging us. It's, it's God saying, this is what you are. Now live consistently in what you are. Like, just, just unleash what I have made you. Allow out of you what I have put inside of you. See, encouragement toward mission is encouragement toward living in light of and consistently with what God has made you. This is who we are. We are sent people. We are missionaries. We are ambassadors. We are God's witnesses. Now it's just a matter of living in light of that, living consistently in light of who God has made us to be. Now, when we talk about mission, um, I always feel attention, and I just think we need handlebars for that. That it's an abstract thing to say, live as a missionary. That we need some like core things that we can start with. And I want to just walk you through a couple of these core things that I think lie on the foundational level of what it means to wake up every day thinking and living in light of a missionary calling. Like, What, what does it mean to, to approach every day, every situation as a missionary? So let, let me give you three of these. Number one, I, I think it means, first of all, that we are praying for people who don't know Jesus that we are praying for people who don't know Jesus. Now, we use the vocabulary at Stonegate of a top five to, to encourage this. That, that I, and I want you to look at me right here in the eye. I think every one of us in the room need to have a top five people that we are praying for. People that are far from God that we are desperately asking God to break through. Now, let's be straight. We're not, we're not making anyone a project in doing that. We are loving people enough and concerned enough about people. These are friends. These are family. These are people in our life, neighbors, coworkers. These are people we love. And apart from God doing something, they are going to perish. And so what a top five is, is saying, I am concerned enough about this person that I am going to beg and pester God to do something. I'm gonna beg God to break through whatever hardness is there and to save and rescue and redeem and draw back. That's what I'm gonna pray for. And listen, I think it would be very foolish for us to think God is going to operate like that in our life and to do those sort of things with people around us unless we are praying for it. I just think it's foolish to think that. God's normal means of how he operates goes like this. If we want this sort of thing out here in our life, we pray and we ask God and we pester God for it. This is why if you sum up the biblical teaching of Jesus about prayer, you could sum it up in one word, ask. Ask God, like God really wants us to ask for these things. And so the normal means of God's working is like this. We pray and we pester and we plead with God and God grants it. We pray and we pester and we plead with God and God grants it. That's the normal way that God operates. And we would just be fools to think that God's gonna do all of these things out here and we're not gonna pray and we're not gonna pester and we're not gonna plead with him to do that. 
It's just not the way God works. And, and, and I think we need this encouragement in here too. God loves to respond to our prayers. And I think God especially loves to respond to prayers for, for the salvation of other people, the people who are far from God, for them to get found by God. I think he especially loves to answer that prayer. So God can answer these things. A, a few, uh, this was back in the spring. I started praying for a friend of mine who is far from God, walking way out there. And uh, so I just start praying. I'm pestering God. I'm asking for God to do things. And in the summer, Laura and I, we went to preach at, at a uh, camp. And so I'm just doing sessions for some college students at Texas Tech. And um, we, we don't have any cell service while we're there. We finally leave that. We get back to civilization. Cell service comes back. And I look at my phone and I've got a message from the guy that I started praying for. And it, that's all, it, it felt odd in that moment because he has never called me and never left a message. So, uh, so I check it, and literally, I started praying for this guy like three months ago, two months ago. I check it, and he says, uh, Rodney, I think I found what God wants to do with me in my life. I think I found my purpose in life. I think God wants me to become a pastor. I'm like, great, step one, we need to become a Christian. And then we can do the pastor thing. Are we seeing that though? I, I prayed with him for a couple of months that God would do something. And the guy leaves a voicemail wanting to become a pastor. That is, that is God doing something. Man, God loves to answer prayer like that. Man, I just want to give you encouragement. Let's pester God for the salvation of people family, friends, neighbors, that people who are far from God would return to God. Let's pester God for that. God loves to answer those prayers. I think it starts with prayer. This is the, the foundational part of living sin. starts with us praying that God would use our life and lips to the salvation of other people. But the second part of it is not just praying, but it's also inviting people into our lives. Like actually befriending people, gaining a voice in their life extending relationship to people. And isn't this where it gets messy for all of us? It's a lot easier to pray for someone than it is to actually become a friend to someone. This is where it gets really messy. But part of what missional living means, part of what living on the mission of God, living sent lives means, is that we are opening up our lives to people who don't know Jesus. And thirdly, so it's not just praying and not just inviting, but thirdly, it's actually being willing to talk about Jesus with people that we're actually willing to open up conversation about spiritual things. Now, I know just the talk of that, for some of us in the room, sends like a shudder down our spine just thinking about, you mean I've got to talk to someone that doesn't know Jesus about Jesus? So I know that that exists. And can I just give us all one place that I think is a very non-confrontational, easy place to start? I think just opens the door for so many good things to happen in conversation with people that we are befriending and, pr and praying for is for you to simply ask this question. Neighbors, coworkers, family, friends, for you to look at them and say something like this. This is such an easy place to start. Nine out of 10 people in our culture will be very appreciative of you doing this. For you to look at them and say, I've been thinking about you lately and God has laid it on my heart. I really wanna start praying for you. Can you let me know how I can pray for you? Most people in our culture are gonna look at you and say, thank you so much for thinking of me and praying for me. Here's a couple of ways that you could do that. That is such an easy just step into that is not, it's not overly scary. You're gonna get a good response to that nine out of 10 times. It's just an easy way to open up spiritual conversation. How can I pray for you? 
I'm thinking about, I want to pray. How can I do that? People are appreciative of that. See, this is like some core foundational things of what it means to live sin. We're praying for people who don't know Jesus. We're inviting them into our life. We're opening up spiritual conversations. Those sort of things are kind of the foundational elements of living a sent life. So I I want to take a moment here, and we're not going to take long, but I want to take a moment to pray for our church family in this particular area. If there is one area that I think our church still needs to grow up in, this is one of those areas where we still need to grow up. And so will you bow with me? I want you to take a second to pray for yourself just where you are. We've got a couple more things we want to talk about before we finish this morning. But I want to take a second right now where you are just to pray for this in, in your life, for our church family. You would, that God would give you a deep sense of burden for people. Why don't you pray that right now? That, that right now people around you are perishing. And that God would give you such a deep concern for that, that you would pray, that God would keep you up at night praying for them. That you would open up your life and befriend people who are far from God. That you would talk about spiritual things and what God has been doing in your life. You can pray that this next year that God would use your life and lips for the salvation of other people. Gosh, for our church family, that we would see hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people meet Jesus because of the life and lips of our church. That this culture would be so present and God would work in such a powerful way through it. So God, will you do that? We tell you we need help in that. And it's in your good name that we ask it. Amen. This is what it means to live sent. Now, two more things in terms of Jesus saying, I've sent you into the world. Living sent lives affects everything we do. It affects everything. See, when we talk about living on mission, here's one of the the fears that I have for us in the room is that we'll hear it like this. So we hear living on mission and we think this. Someone is asking me to add more to my already busy life. And as soon as we hear that, we shut down because we don't even feel like that's possible. And so I, I... I want to, now I want you to look at me here because I want you to get what I'm about to say. I don't think for most of us that the issue is adding more to your life. I think for most of us in the room, what missional living requires for us and living on the mission of God's sent lives, what it means for us is not an adding to in our life, but what we're already doing being soaked with gospel intentionality. That what we're doing already gets intentionality behind it. That we are realizing that everywhere I go, every moment, every situation, every conversation, every person I bump into, I am bumping into this situation as a missionary of Jesus. That sort of intentionality. I think that's what, what it means. Not so much an adding on, but a soaking of everything you're doing right now. So just think about what makes up your week. For most of us in the room, these are the sort of things that make up our week. We work, we have family time, and we've got kids and the world that is that. Some of us have hobbies. Right, so we live in a neighborhood. Those four things right there make up the majority, probably 95% of all of our time that we spend. We, you know, kids, work, neighborhood, family, th- those sort of things. 
So it's asking the question, with what I'm already doing, what does it look like for me to be a missionary in those things? What does it look like for me to bring gospel intentionality into that, realizing that every place I am, God has ordained me and sent me and commissioned me to live there as a missionary of his. See, that sort of intentionality that affects everything we do is what's required to live on the mission of God. Not an adding to, but a soaking into everything we do. You know, I feel especially um, empathetic for moms, especially stay-at-home moms, where your world, yeah, there is an amen to that, where your world revolves around tornadoes that some people call kids, right? And I, mean, I, I am acutely aware, like, and some of this is from personal experience, when I have a day where I am with my kids, you are very likely to find me tied up in a closet and they're running the house. I mean, it is hard work, it is hard, and it's so easy to think this as a mom. It's so, or a dad, it's so easy to think, my world, my job, the only thing I do is clean up the mm, in this house. That's all I do here. And listen, that is not what you do there primarily. You have been sent and commissioned by God to be a missionary in your house to evangelize those little lives that God has entrusted to you. I mean, God has given you great purpose and the great purpose is not primarily in changing a diaper. The great purpose is primarily in bringing the good news of Jesus to bear in your home. But it's so easy to lose sight of that. Now, I feel like I talk to guy after guy who feels no purpose in their work. It is a total drag. It feels meaningless and pointless. And listen, if you're thinking, and this is how most of us think about work, I am a wage earner. That's why I work. That is a part of why you work, but that is not primary to why you work. The primary reason God has sent you to your workplace is so you can be a missionary of Jesus that brings Jesus with you everywhere you go into every relationship that you have. And if all we are is a wage earner, work will always fall flat in our life. But if we are a missionary of Jesus who's bringing Jesus with us everywhere we go, now life takes on a new, our work takes on a new vibrancy for us. And you know, just as an aside too, I think one of the things that, that hurt us in terms of missional living is the, the misconception that many of us carry that missional living, our life as a missionary of God, is always gonna be exhilarating and exciting. It's not. You know what it's gonna feel like most of the time? Boring and monotonous. This is life as a missionary. It's a slow grind. It's being faithful in the little things. It's being faithful in the little moments of the spirit prompting. If, you, if you're at a workplace, it's showing up day in, day out, doing the work that God's given you to do with joy and thanksgiving and doing it well. It's doing all of those things. And along the ways you do those little things, those monotonous things, those boring things, God will periodically visit your place and visit your life with such power and somebody's gonna get saved. But the day in, day out is a slow grind. It, it's monotonous. It's all of that. This is what living on mission looks like. It's taking Jesus with you in that slow grind everywhere you go, in every moment, every conversation, every person, every situation that you're in. It affects everything. And lastly, living sent lives is costly. It costs everything. It doesn't just affect everything. It costs everything. Jesus shows us two things that we need to know about mission and living on the mission of God. Thing number one that Jesus shows us, Jesus shows us the way of mission. And in short, just think again about the incarnation. 
The, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. In other words, Jesus left the, the beauty and comfort and confines of heaven for the rags of a stable. That's a bad trade, isn't it? That's just a, that's just a hard trade. There's just something you're gonna lose in that moment. In a very real sense, when Jesus became fully human, he restrained himself to the point where he lost things. He had to let go of things. He had to be okay with not exercising some of the things that he could exercise as God. He lost in all of those ways. It was costly. Mission for Jesus, being sent by God the Father for Jesus to become human. It cost God the Son everything to do that. Welcome to the way of mission. It is extremely costly. See, here's the way I personally want mission to work in my life. I want it to go something like this. God sovereignly places someone into my life and I befriend them. We start to kind of develop a relationship. I look at them and think, dude, they're great. I like them. I wanna spend more time with them. If I'm taking a road trip, I would choose them to go with. They're life-giving, it's fun, it's all of that. God puts that guy in my life, we start developing a relationship, I start to pray for this guy, we start to do life together. At some point he comes and says, what must I do to be saved? I just saved Jesus and the guy gets saved. We start working through Galatians together in like three, four years, he goes and plants a church and he just kills it. That's how I want it to go. Can I just give you an example of how it has gone in my life? Here's how it has gone. God um, puts beside me sovereignly a person that if I had the lineup of people I'm taking on a road trip, he's never getting in. It's not life-giving. It's life-taking. Like I have to give myself a pep talk before I make the walk over. You know what I'm saying? It's like I have to like get myself ready to get in relationship because I'm gonna be giving a lot. So this is what it feels like for me. So I get into relationship, and this is just one of the illustrations over the last few years for me. I get into uh, to a relationship, um, and I start praying for, for this guy. I start opening up my life, and it hurts to open up my life. So here's what opening up my life meant. Will you come help me um, do a fence? Yeah, I'll come help you do a fence. I get over to, to, to help do the fence. Who do you think does the fence? I do the fence, that's who does the dang fence. So I do the fence. I'm the one pulling the post. I'm, so you, you see the picture here. This is what opening up my life looked like. It looked like pain. It looked like a lot of discomfort. It looked like me not being able to veg on a Saturday afternoon and do the fence. So opening up my life was costly. It's like a, it's a life, it's a life taking thing that I'm doing in the midst of that. And so as we get to know each other, he's getting to know my story. I'm getting to know his story. It's obvious that there's some deep addictions kind of wrapped into his life that are just hard. So it's one step forward, two steps back. It's, yeah, I'm in, I'm doing this, and then you realize, now I'm not doing that. It's, I'm all in, but then I'm all out. It, it's, we're just in that flow of things. We're just hard. It's just hard. So we're opening up life. All of these things are happening. And then we get a phone call from, from um, the house that says, come over, we've got a problem. I get over, I have to break up a fight between him and her. In the process of breaking up the fight between him and her, I almost get into a fight with him. We end up leaving that night and tension is in the air. That was like a month and a half ago and tension is still there. We still haven't recovered from that yet. Now listen, that is what mission looks like. See, I would love you know, the thing I, would, I want, but here's reality. It is painful, hard work. It's you giving life away to make it happen. It's you befriending people that you would never befriend unless you were a Christian. It's you doing things that you would never do unless you were a Christian. 
This is life on the mission of God. And you know what I feel in me often? I feel in me that, that pride and that arrogance and that just all of that come out of me that says, dude, if you want to wreck your life, just go wreck it. Just go do what you want to do. I mean, I just feel all of that in me, right? This is the mission. This is what it looks like. It's messy. It's a grind. It's costly. And Jesus shows us that, yes, that is what mission will always be like. See, when, when Jesus came to you, he didn't say this. Hey, that one right there, man, they are so awesome. If I'm doing the road trip, man, I'm picking them. That's not what Jesus said. He had his road trip, and it was good where he was. See, to, to come after you and pursue you, it cost Jesus everything. That is the costly nature of mission. So Jesus shows us the way of mission, but here's the second thing Jesus shows us, or, or does for us. Jesus enables a life of mission. He doesn't just show us the life of mission. He enables a life of sacrificial love. See, we all need more than for Jesus to be the shower of the way. We need Jesus to be our substitute and our savior that will enable us to walk down that painful road. That's what we all need in this room. And that is, what, that is what the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus gives. Not just a showing of what mission looks like, but an actual enablement of it. See, when we feel deep down in our bones that Jesus left the comforts of heaven for the excruciating pain of a cross for us, that does something to us. It, it enables something in us. It creates capacity for a life of sacrificial love in us. When we realize that Jesus was humiliated so that we could be brought in and have hope, that does something to us when we feel that deep in our bones. Not just as a showing of the way, but when we feel that experientially, Jesus as our savior who gave up everything to get us, when we feel that deep in our bones, it enables, creates the capacity for things that would not be there otherwise. I'll just give you the practical, like how this conversation plays out in my head. This is how mission, how it works for me. There are so many moments where I know that God is calling me to do things that I don't wanna do. He is asking me to extend relationship where I don't wanna do it. He's asking me to not veg in front of the TV, but get out in front in my neighborhood to befriend neighbors when I don't wanna do it. And listen, there are so many times where I just don't do it. I don't wanna do it and I don't do it. And here's how that conversation rolls in me. This is what repentance, this is what reminding myself of Jesus looks like in those moments. It looks like me in that moment confessing my sin and unbelief and addiction to comfort and saying to God and expressing thankfulness for, you did not treat me that way. You did not treat me this way. You did not, you did not choose comfort over my salvation. You did not choose comfort over mission. But you came, you became flesh and you came and you rescued me. And your rescuing work, here's the great, it covers all of my unbelief and all of my addiction for comfort. Thank you, God, for that. It looks like me reminding myself that in those moments where it feels like I'm giving and giving and giving and not receiving anything in those moments of mission, that Jesus, the Son of God, gave and gave and gave and gave so that I could have. And he did that for me. He was rich and he became poor so that I who was poor could have everything in him. That's what Jesus did for me. And you know, as I remind myself that in Jesus, my failure of mission is covered. And as I remind myself of Jesus coming after me as an act of mission to rescue me, do you know what it produces in my life? It's the strangest thing. It produces a willingness to turn the TV off and make friends with neighbors. 
it produces a willingness in me to give life when it just feels like nothing's being given in return. It produces a willingness in me to, to do offense when it's all me doing it. It produces a willingness to do those hard things. See, the grace of Jesus doesn't just show us the way. It's the grace of Jesus that changes us and changes us to enable us to walk down that painful road of mission. And couldn't we all use more of that grace? Couldn't we all use more of that? Let's pray together. I want to give you just a moment to allow the Spirit of God to press into you the things that would be most helpful and to wipe away the things that wouldn't be. And And I want to give you just a second right here, right now, to, to pray for your top five. And if you have not made a top five, will you please do that today? That you will start praying and pestering and pleading with God to rescue and redeem. And maybe this would be a good time to think about your life. Like, are you praying for people who, who don't know Jesus? Are you inviting people that, that don't know Jesus into your life, who are, who are far from God, into your life? Are, are you willing to talk about the things of God with people? And if not, I, I want to make this clear. If not, the answer is not right now in this moment, let me go try hard and do better right now. The answer is Repentance. The answer is turning from sin and unbelief and, and accepting and believing that God has covered that in Jesus. And then it's running to Jesus and hurling your life upon the person and work of Jesus. That's where it starts. And I just can't help but think that many of us are in need of a moment like that with God. Where we are turning from our lack of mission. And we are turning to God who covers our sin and who gives the grace we need to enable a life that he has called us to. And if you're here this morning and you've never had a moment where you have stepped across the line of faith, then the good news of Jesus can be summed up like this. We're all idiots. We have an incredibly bright future in Jesus because of his life, death, and resurrection. And anyone can get in on this. You can get in on this right now this morning. And here's what it looks like to get in on this. It looks like us turning from our sin and throwing our life in faith upon Jesus. And the Bible says that when you do that right now this morning, you can get in on the incredibly bright future. So don't leave here apart from getting in on that. Like right now, this moment, you can do that by expressing that to God. And if that's you this morning, will you take that guest card and check that box on establishing a relationship with Jesus? And when we sing this next song, if you'll take it over to the prayer table, kind of by the door where you came in, we'll have guys over there that would love to pray over you and for you this morning. So Father, will you help us? God, we tell you that we need help. God, we want to be good missionaries. We want to be faithful to the call that you put on our life. We want to be faithful to live consistently with who you have made us to be. And God, we just acknowledge that we need help this morning to do that. So Father, will you give us the grace and the help right now to walk the painful, the hard, the costly path of obedience here. And it's in your good name that we ask it. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas. For service times, additional audio and study resources, as well as information about our church, please visit us at stonegate-church.com.